Well, the lyrics of that song come straight from our text for this morning in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 18, and so please take your Bibles and turn with me there. Romans chapter 3. And for what it's worth, Chris and I rarely sit down and discuss what I'm preaching and what songs he should do, and I typically do my thing, and he does his thing, and I know he does look at the text uh, that we're going to be looking at uh, on Sunday morning, but when uh, songs come together uh, as... um, perfectly as the ones that he chose for this morning and what we're going to learn from this text. It gives me great encouragement, great hope that the Spirit of God is at work and wanting to emphasize a, a message, to make a point, to establish some truth in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, and um, that he's even after someone this morning. I don't know who that may be, but um, it's always exciting to know that God is uh, the one who's seeking this morning, seeking us, and uh, he goes after us to draw us to himself. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9, what then, Paul asks, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Father, you know that I always try to pray before I get up here that you would be merciful to me, a sinner, and I'm more aware of that this morning than ever in light of this text, and Lord, I know that the things that we're going to be talking about are going to be hard to hear and even harder to accept. We don't like to have to think or talk about how bad we really are. We like to think of ourselves as good people, but we're grateful that you have given us your spirit to counteract our warped minds and hearts that we might understand this text and apply it to our lives. And so we pray for your spirit's illuminating work that we might leave here uh, having a greater apprehension of our, the depth of our sin and a greater appreciation for the depth of your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as bad as our world is and as evil as human beings can be, 
I personally am dumbfounded that most people believe that man by nature is basically good. I guess that shouldn't be such a shocker since part of our sin nature is to cover up our sin, to make excuses for our sin, to blame other people or other things for our sin, and even to try to deny our sin. According to modern philosophy and psychology, people are born in a neutral state, and the environment that they're raised in is what determines whether they develop into a good person or a bad person. However, the Bible teaches something radically different in regards to the nature of man. According to God's word, every part of every person is completely corrupted by sin. Let me say that again. Every part of every person is completely corrupted by sin. And the reason why we do bad things is because we are born bad. We have evil Wicked, sinful hearts. We are rotten to the core. And um, if you feel like your self-esteem's already taken a hit this morning, um, there's more of that to come. Get over it. And um, besides, if you're a parent, you get this, right? There, there's no honest parent that would ever deny the innate sinfulness of man because we all know that we never had to teach our kids how to lie or how to be selfish or how to be disobedient or rebellious. They, they just kind of pick that up on their own. Why? Because these things come naturally to, to a child because that's what's inside of them. The great Puritan theologian Jonathan Edwards I think said it best. He said that Children, babies in particular, are vipers in diapers. And that's why we as parents have to devote so much time to, to teaching our ch children to tell the truth and to share and to obey. Because again, these things don't come naturally. And so based on what the Bible says, and along with our own experience... The obvious conclusion is that we are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. And what's worse, there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to change the way we are. And if left to ourselves, we will end up paying the consequences of our sin in hell for all eternity. And so in short, everyone, apart from Christ, is helplessly dominated by sin, and hopelessly doomed for hell. That's what the Bible says about you, and that's what the Bible says about me, apart from Christ. We're helplessly dominated by sin, and we're hopelessly doomed to hell. This is what theologians refer to as the doctrine of total depravity. Are you familiar with that expression? Total depravity? Well, for those of you that maybe this is a new concept, let me give you a definition of total depravity. Don't try to write it down because it's a little bit lengthy. I'll read it twice so we can get the full um, grasp here of what this doctrine is. Total depravity is this. 
based on Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, every human being has inherited a sinful nature and thereby is conceived in sin and birthed into this world spiritually dead, blind and deaf to the things of God and is an, ob- is an object of God's wrath who is not just inclined to sin but enslaved to sin because every part of our being is infected or affected by sin. That includes our bodies, our minds, our emotions, our desires, our motives, and even our wills, which means every human being is neither willing or able to change themselves. You want me to read that again? Because it was so encouraging. Based on Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, every human being has inherited a sinful nature and thereby is conceived in sin and birthed into this world, spiritually dead, blind, and deaf to the things of God, and is an object of God's wrath, who is not just inclined to sin, but enslaved to sin, because every part of our being is infected or affected by sin, bodies, minds, emotions, desires, motives, and wills, which means every human being is neither willing or able to change themselves. That's why the doctrine of total depravity is often referred to as total inability. Now let me provide some balance here because I'm sure there's some questions already uh, brewing in your mind. The doctrine of depravity doesn't mean that we are as bad as we could be. But it does mean we are not as good as we need to be. In other words, we're not as bad as we could be, but we're bad enough to deserve death and hell. Furthermore, we may not be guilty of every sin, but the seeds of every sin are in our hearts, which means we are capable of committing the worst sins imaginable. Do you believe that? If you don't, don't. The Bible says, take heed lest you, what? Fall. Also, I think... We are capable of doing good things, but even our best actions and intentions are tainted with sin and are unable to earn God's favor because they fall short of his perfect standards. And so what we desperately need is an entirely new nature, which is made possible by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, whereby he brings dead, depraved sinners back to life and grants them repentance and faith so they're willing and able to turn from their sin and place their faith in what Jesus did through his life, death, and resurrection to rescue them from death and hell so that they can spend eternity with God in heaven. And I think it's vital that we understand the doctrine of total depravity because it's foundational to our understanding as Christians. And I would even go so far as to say this, if you don't apprehend and accept what the Bible teaches about sin, you are not and cannot be a Christian. How can you be saved if you don't know what you're being saved from? And so because this doctrine of total depravity is so important, I just want to take a few minutes to look with you at a series of verses from both the Old and New Testaments, from which the doctrine of total depravity is derived. I just kind of front-loaded this discussion with definitions and explanations, but let me show you now the basis of those definitions and those statements. 
And I want to encourage you to try to follow along as much as you can as we look at these various passages, starting in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The title in my Bible over chapter 6 says simply, The Corruption of Mankind. And here we have the record of the flood, uh, when God decided to destroy all mankind, save for Noah and his family, with a worldwide flood. Why? What motivated him to send the flood? Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now we always say you're not supposed to use never or always, right? Well, God knew that that was appropriate. That every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He was clearly making a point here of how corrupt mankind was. They were completely, totally corrupt. Now turn over to Job chapter 15. Job chapter 15, verse 14. Job 15, 14. What is man that he should be pure, or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? In other words, it's not possible. Behold, he puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is detestable and corrupt man who drinks iniquity like water. I mean, we just guzzle sin like it's going out of style, right? And we can't get enough of it. How about chapter 25 of Job? Just turn a few pages more to the right. Job 25, verses 4 to 6. How then can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of woman? If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man, that maggot, and the son of man, that worm? How are you feeling now? God just called us a maggot. You ever seen a maggot? In the bottom of the trash can? That is nasty. I mean, I can't think of anything nastier than a maggot. Well, God likens us to maggots. How about Psalm 51? The great King David understood his sinful condition when he was confessing his sin of adultery and murder in Psalm 51. In verse 5, he says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. I was a sinner from the second I was conceived. Not the second I was born. I was born a sinner. But it started even before that. It was the second I was conceived in my mother's womb. A sinner had been created. Another sinner had been created. Psalm 58, Psalm 58, verse 3, how about this? The wicked are estranged from the womb. In other words, we go astray the moment we come out of our mother's womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. 
They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ears so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or a skillful, skillful caster of spells. I mean, snakes are scary enough, right? But when they stop up their ears, right? So not even the charmer playing his little thing, right? To get him to do this thing, right? He stops up his ears, puts cotton in his ears. I don't, I'm not interested. I don't want to hear that. Because I'm all about killing you. That's how he likens mankind. How about Ecclesiastes chapter 7? Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Solomon musing about life and the meaning of life and death. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. There's no sinless person alive. Why? Well, look at Ecclesiastes 9, verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and check this out, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. People are insanely sinful. It's who we are. It's what's in our heart. How about Isaiah chapter 1? Isaiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Here is the prophet describing Israel, this sinful nation. Isaiah 1, 4, alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged nor softened with oil. Not sure if you picked that up in verses 5 and 6. That was a picture, a description of a leper. Someone whose entire body was riddled with leprosy. A, a, a really gross, disgusting picture. How about Jeremiah 13, 23? Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23 Jeremiah, Jeremiah asks a very interesting question, a rhetorical question. Jeremiah 13, verse 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Can a black person become white? Can a leopard become a tiger? The answer is what? Of course not. Why? Because those things are innate. That's who they were created to be. Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. In other words, it's just as impossible for you, an evil person, to do good. And then Jeremiah 17.10, you're familiar with this verse, I'm sure. Uh, excuse me, verse 9, Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick, sick. Who can understand it? That's your heart. That's my heart. Desperately sick. So much so, we don't even understand our own hearts. How wicked they, they actually are. Now jumping to the New Testament, 
John chapter 8, verse 34. These are the words of Christ. John chapter 8, verse 34. Talking about the truth making people free. Verse 34, he said, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Do you commit sin? I commit sin. What does that make us? Slaves of sin. How about the book of Romans? Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, that would be Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. In other words, you can't say, well, that, that's on Adam. If I was there, I wouldn't have done that. Oh, yes, you would. And maybe worse. We all sin, and, which is evidence of the fact that we deserve to be separated from God forever through death and hell. Just like Adam was cast out of the garden. How about Romans 8, verses 7 and 8? Just a couple pages to the right there. Romans 8, 7. The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then a familiar passage in Ephesians Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, hopefully all the pages in your Bible that have been stuck together for a while, they're, you're getting loosened up here, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul said, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And then jumping over to chapter 4 of Ephesians Verse 17, Paul exhorted the Ephesian Christians to no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. How do they walk? Unbelievers in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they have become callous, have, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. In other words, we can't get enough sin. We're just greedy. We want more and more and more. And then finally, Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. And Paul says this, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts, and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. In light of all these horrific descriptions of us, apart from Christ, 
I think it would be helpful to read at least one of the buts that follow. Notice he says, verse 4, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through His Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And we should all let out a collective, we dodged not just a bullet, we dodged God's wrath. We dodged hell for all eternity. Now, with all that in our mind, let's go back to our text. Today, Romans chapter 3. And I wanted to read all those verses because this is the ultimate verse or passage in the Bible, I guess, on the depravity of man. There is no more explicit description of total depravity found anywhere in the Bible than right here in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 18. And here, Paul provided undeniable proof that the entire human race is completely corrupted by sin and condemned by God. Now, if you still have your little uh, roadmap uh, for Romans, um, hopefully you kind of kept that in the front of your Bible there, and I told you to keep it with you, and this is kind of our little roadmap that we're using to follow along here so we don't get lost in the forests, right, for all the trees here. But we're in the first major section here of the book of Romans, and uh, Paul is making the case that man lacks what? Righteousness. And... Uh, and so he, first of all, says, hey, just want you to know, um, the Gentiles are guilty. Um, chapter 1, chapter 2, the, the Jews are guilty. And now here in chapter 3, he's basically saying the whole world is guilty. If anybody's feeling left out in this, in this uh, scathing uh, indictment, of the entire human race, here we are. All of us are corrupted by, by sin and condemned by God. He's, again, talked about the blatantly immoral who approve of bad behavior in Genesis 1, or, or excuse me, Romans 1, the, the hypocritically self-righteous who disapprove of bad behavior. But nevertheless, both of these groups are guilty before God. Why? Because they lack the righteousness that God requires to make a person right with him, and therefore they deserve to be judged by him. And so if you're looking at that little outline that I gave you, you can see that that Romans 3, verses 9 through really 20, we're going to look at 19 and 20 next time, but this is really could be likened or considered to be Paul's closing argument in his case against mankind in which he presented a a litany of charges 
about our lack of righteousness, about our utter sinfulness. And as we're going to see, he literally threw the book at us. The Old Testament, that is. And all of these quotations that we're going to see in just a moment. But what Paul did here, and this is just one way to consider this text, is that he presented four indictments that prove we are completely corrupted by sin and worthy of God's wrath. Totally corrupted by sin and totally deserving of God's wrath. And I think what Paul wanted to do here was to to prove the pervasive nature of sin by establishing two basic facts. The first one was in verse 9, and the second was in verses 10 through 18. The, the, The first fact is that men are universally sinful. He says, we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So men are universally sinful. But secondly, they're they're totally sinful. In other words, sin is all-inclusive. It includes everybody, but it's also comprehensive in that it corrupts not just every man, but it corrupts every part of man. Every part of you, every part of me is corrupted, infected by sin. And in verse 9, Paul countered another objection uh, or answered another question posed by this imaginary heckler in the crowd, right? This, de- this ongoing debate he's, he's having. And after saying what he said in verses 1 through 8, that despite having the tremendous advantage of being entrusted with the oracles of God, God was still faithful and fair to punish the Jews right alongside the Gentiles. And so he beat the Jews to the next question. He says, are we better then than they? Are we Jews any better off then than the Gentiles? At the end of the day, yeah, we've been, we have these advantages, but really, are we really any better off than the Gentiles? And what does Paul say? Not at all. Glad you asked. <laughs> I just want you to know the answer is no. You're not any better in God's eyes. Why? Because both Jews and Greeks are all under Sin. Just because you're a Jew, you're no more likely to win God's favor than anyone else in this world because like everyone else, you are under sin's control and you are under sin's condemnation. And that's what that phrase means when it says you are all under sin. You are under sin's power and you will experience sin's punishment. In other words, every single Human being is enslaved to sin and subjects to sin's consequences. If you look later into the book of Romans here, Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about slavery to sin in chapter 6, verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be what? Slaves to sin. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And then this all climaxes this discussion about slavery to sin in verse 23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. In other words, sin will eventually kill us all. And if you think about it, slavery to sin is the worst kind of slavery. 
I know slavery, slavery is bad. Human slavery is terrible. Slave trafficking, all the things that we even are happening in our modern times, that is horrific. But a slave may find relief from an evil master by fleeing from him, escaping from him. But it's impossible to flee from our brutal bondage to sin since our sinful heart remains with us wherever we, we go. It's impossible to escape ourselves. And that's why we can appreciate what Paul said in Romans chapter 7 after sharing his frustration with ongoing sin, battling sin in his life. In, in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am. Man, what a wretch I am. We just sang that. That saved a what? Wretch. Like me, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? How do I get out, out of this prison cell? How do, I, how do I get these chains that hold me fast in sin. How do I get rid of them? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? And, and again, just to remind you of how practical, how relevant this, this subject of depravity is. I mean, you... All we've seen in the news lately is this, this, all this stuff about gun control legislation. In light of the, 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 the you know, mass shootings that are happening all over the place, time and time again. And, but what the world doesn't seem to understand is you can control who has guns and who doesn't have guns. You can take the guns away and arm the teachers and, and all this stuff. But as long as people are controlled by sin, guess what? This stuff's going to just keep on happening. We don't have a gun problem, we have a sin problem. And no real change will ever take place until people admit they have a sin problem and embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior who's the only one who can free them from the power and the control of sin. And so Paul went on here And he turned to the testimony of Scripture to substantiate his charges that man is totally depraved. And what he does in verses 10 through 18 is, is uh, he followed a practice that the rabbis in his day called pearl stringing. And he, he strung together a, a series of six Old Testament passages from, from the Psalms and Isaiah all of which prove his charge that all men are under the dominion of sin. And, and so he basically proves the existence of sin by exposing the effects of sin. But let me show you the effects of sin to prove to you that sin exists. You might, you might have a hard time with, hey, this sin nature thing, it seems ethereal, it's just kind of inside, what are you talking about? I'm not sure I get that. Well, let me show you what man's like on the outside. 
And that should be sufficient proof to show you what's going on in the inside. And so what are these four indictments? Well, first of all, he, he indicts our wayward hearts, our wayward hearts, and he shows how sin has corrupted our character. Verse 10, it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Do you notice how he just stacks up and repeats these words to show the universality of sin? Eight times he says things like all, none, not even one. Okay, Paul, we get it. He was simply quoting from Psalm 14. Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. And it would be good for you to see this in its context. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no what? God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So here's God up in heaven. He creates us. He sustains us. He controls us. He, he, he does everything for us. And he's looking and waiting to see if any of us will get it. Like, hey, you know what? There's a God and he deserves my love and my affection and my obedience and my worship and my honor and my service. And he's up there looking and waiting and looking and waiting and he finds no one who by nature seeks him. He says there's none righteous, not even one. And of course, the righteousness that he's talking about is his righteousness, his standard of righteousness, which was manifested in Christ. Listen, when we compare ourselves to each other, we might look better than someone else. But when we compare ourselves to Christ, none of us come even close to being as good as him. In fact, Jesus himself said, Matthew 5, 48, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Oh, thanks, Jesus, for setting the bar at an impossible level. It's impossible. None of us in and of ourselves will ever be perfect enough, good enough, right, to be acceptable to God. Listen, unless we're, in other words, Jesus was saying, unless we are as good as God, then we won't be acceptable to God. Well, that ain't happening. The only way to be acceptable to God is if he graciously imputes or credits or gives us his righteousness through Christ when we place our trust in him for our salvation. So he says there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. In other words, on our own, we cannot accurately comprehend who God is or have a proper understanding of his revelation of himself in his word, in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says a natural man in other words, a man without the Spirit of God in him, an unsaved man, an unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are a foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. And it's not just that man can't understand or accept the things of God, they don't want to, they're not interested. 
2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 gives us some insight why the God of this world, who's that? Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Again, we already read Ephesians 4, 17, when Paul said, don't walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. All these verses um, prove what's referred to as the noetic effects of sin. The noetic effects of sin doesn't have anything to do with Noah. That's what I thought when I first heard it. It has everything to do with the mind. The word in the Greek for mind is nous. So noetic effects of sin. It means that sin has affected our minds. Sin has warped our minds. We don't think clearly. We don't reason rationally. In fact, our minds are hostile to God and His Word. That's what Paul said in Colossians 1.21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. That's the way our mind was originally before the Lord. One of my favorite commentators is a guy named John Phillips who used to be a professor up at Moody Bible Institute and part of their um, um, correspondence courses and things. Just a brilliant guy and He said this about the noetic effects of sin, how sin has affected our minds. He said this, quote, man's power to think lifts him above the beasts of the field. In this age of scientific enlightenment and advanced technology, we have every evidence that man has a brilliant intellect, which he does. Yet, at the same time, it is strangely clouded to spiritual realities. For despite his genius in so many realms, man betrays a most remarkable denseness when it comes to things of God. He has no natural understanding in this realm at all. His mind, incisive in so many ways, is warped and twisted when it comes to eternal and spiritual issues. The damage wrought by sin runs deep into the very roots of the thinking processes of man. His imaginations are often filthy. His memories often betray him. His deductions are often false. And his conclusions are often wrong. He goes on, he said, man does not understand how abhorrent his sin is to God. He does not understand how holy God is, nor what is involved in the alternatives of heaven or hell which lie ahead, nor at what cost God has provided the very salvation he ignores. If men understood these things, they would be in a hurry to be saved. Indeed, this is exactly what happens when a man's eyes are at last opened by the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And so there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Listen, if left to ourselves, we would never seek to have a relationship with God. We are, by nature, enemies of God, according to Romans 5, verse 10. For while we were enemies, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, we are enemies who who run away from God. And as that song so, said so well, and we actually, we're not just running away from him, we're burning our bridges. We're like blowing up stuff on the way so he can't, right, come after us kind of thing. We're all the prodigal son that said, you know what, forget you, dad, I'm out of here, and I'm going to go do my own thing and live the way I want to live. 
It's a story of all of us. And, and we try to hide. Even when God comes looking for us, we try to hide from him. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did in the garden? God went out to walk amongst the garden and commune with Adam like he had done all the times before. And he's looking around. Hey, Adam, where, where'd, where'd Adam go? Well, Adam's hiding in the bushes now because of his sin. As we already learned in chapter 1 here in Romans, men don't search for God, they suppress the truth about God. We don't naturally seek His kingdom and His righteousness, but rather seek our own interests, like it says in Philippians 2.21. And so consequently, God is the one who must seek us out. Luke 19.10 Jesus said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Why? Because the lost can't find themselves. John 6, 44, no one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. There ain't anybody coming to Jesus unless God draws him by his Holy Spirit. He said, now wait a minute. Why, if this is true that no one seeks God, why... Are there so many religions in the world? Why are there countless pagan temples and pagan worshipers all over the place? Well, I would say this. All the false religions in the world are demonically inspired attempts to escape God. Not to find God. Why would I say that? Well, because in Romans 1, we learn that we're idolaters who make God into our own image or we make God to our own liking. We exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That describes all the religions of the world. We exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature. We serve ourselves rather than the creator. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.20, interesting verse, he said, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. Try that one on the next time you bump into someone from another religion and you observe their ceremonies and you mention to them that verse that according to God, you're sacrificing these things to demons. And then duck, right? Because that's not going to necessarily go over well. So there's no one, who, none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. All have turned aside. This is a quote from Psalm 53. Psalm 53, verse 3. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Again, Paul is quoting directly from the Old Testament. And of course, um, we're familiar with what what, um, Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, verse 6. All of us like sheep have what? Gone astray. We have turned, each of us has turned to his own way. So in other words, we've all gone in the wrong direction. We've all veered off the path that God intended us to be on 
and we've gone our own way. We've done what we wanted to do. That's why it says in Proverbs 14, 12 and Proverbs 16, 25, there is a way which seems right to a man, but in the end is the way of what? Death. And so he says, together they become useless. And I found it interesting that the Hebrew equivalent of this Greek term for useless was used to describe milk that had turned sour and rancid and was unfit to drink. Have you ever kind of poured your bowl of cereal and grabbed the milk out of the refrigerator and you open it up and you're like, whoo, what was that? Or worse, you maybe poured a glass and, you know, or poured it in your cereal and took your first bite and go, man, these Cheerios taste funny today. And you Oh, oh, that's disgusting, right? You dump it down the... I mean, it's like, good, throw it away. In the same way, we have become useless. We are unprofitable to God and ourselves. We fail to fulfill our purpose as creatures made in the image of God to honor Him, to obey Him, to glorify Him. So we're like fish that can't swim or birds that can't fly. What's the use? We're good for nothing except kindling wood for hell. That's what Jesus said in John 15, 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they're burned. So they've all turned aside. Together we become useless. There is none who does good. Again, we said this already. We may do some good things, but they're not good enough to earn God's Favor because they're often tainted by impure motives. We're doing them for our glory and not his glory. That's why Isaiah chapter 64, 6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like what? Filthy rags or like a filthy garment. And just to be sure, he says one more line There is not even one. All the above is true without exception. And it's from our wayward hearts, as we're about to see, that all the rest flows. Mark chapter 7, verse 21, For from within, out of the heart of men, the wayward heart of men, proceed, what? The evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. It's not our environment. It makes us do bad things. The bad is inside of us. And it just comes out. In fact, it makes the environment bad. We pollute the environment. The, the environment doesn't pollute us. And so he talks about our wayward hearts. But secondly, he looks, he indicts our wicked mouths. And he shows how sin has corrupted our conversation in verses 13 and 14. He says, Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of abs is under the asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And by the way, he goes on to talk about feet and eyes. And so from here on out, it's, this is kind of an anatomy lesson regarding our sin. He, he, he listed several body parts, including our throats, our lips, our mouths, our feet, our eyes, to show that we are riddled with sin from head to toe. I mean, just look at what we say and look at what we do. And that proves that we're not naturally good. We're naturally evil. We're naturally sinful. 
Their throat is an open grave. It's a direct quote from Psalm 5.9. You think about the purpose of graves or caskets, right? They're, they're closed. Eventually, right? You might have an open casket at the memorial service or the funeral, but eventually they close that and they actually put it in the ground and they cover it with dirt. Why? To cover up and hide the sight and the smell of a decaying body. And Paul's saying that whenever we spew foul words, it's like this sinful stench comes out of our mouths that smells like a putrid, rotting corpse. And again, Jesus said that whatever comes out of our mouths is simply an overflow of what is in our hearts. Matthew 15, 18, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. Listen, nothing reveals a person's character quicker and easier than just just listening to them talk. Kelly and I recently went to a basketball game at at, um, our son's school. It was the championship game, uh, state championship basketball tournament, and it was really a fun game to go to and watch. And but I have to be honest, I was distracted by this individual behind me who was just um, spewing out all sorts of stuff during the game. And, and uh, I just thought to myself, honestly, I first thought I was like, she's not a nice lady. Because I, I can tell she's not a nice lady. She maybe looked pretty on the outside, but man, what was coming out of her mouth revealed that she had an ugly heart. And I was thankful for my wife. She was just sitting next to me going... Why did that, why was that a foul? And, uh, you know, how many points was that? And it was really cute. You know, she's not into basketball so much, and so she was just curious, and she wasn't yelling at the refs and, you know, dressing them down and screaming at the players and, you know, all that kind of stuff, and I was just thankful for my wife. And, and again, not that my wife's not a sinner, but she does have a sweet heart and a kind heart, and what comes out of her mouth reveals that. Notice he says, with their tongues they keep deceiving. Psalm 5.9 talks not just about lying, but about flattering, which is a form of lying, by the way. You know that, right? Flattering sometimes is just as dishonest as lying, straight out lying. Why? Because you don't really mean what you're saying. If you wouldn't say to someone else about how great this person is, and you're just saying it to their face, so it makes you look good and makes them like you, right? Then you're being dishonest. And so we deceive through gossiping and slandering and exaggerating all these things. He says, the poison of asps is under our lips. Again, a quote from Psalm 140, verse 3, which simply states that our words can be as deadly as the bite of a poisonous snake. We strike and we lash out at at each other with our venomous tongues. I love what it says in James chapter 3, verse 7. For every species of beasts and of birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. I mean, how in the world are we able to train a stinking killer whale? Shamu, right? But no one can tame the tongue, this little tongue. We can train a, a massive, how many ton orca whale, but we can't tame this little slab of meat inside our mouths. 
It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. And he says our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. That's a quote from Psalm 10, verse 7. And again, how, I mean, you just have to, to go to the movies and, 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 and uh, just, just hear how mouths just spew forth all sorts of filthy language and F-bombs this and S-words that and GD that and GD this and it's just all over the place. I mean, just go into the locker room at school, right? Go, go into the, the, the work room at work and listen to the conversations, the hostility that's expressed towards other people with caustic, angry, bitter words. And again, the Bible says all over the place how destructive a weapon the tongue is. It's likened to a sword in Psalm 64. It's likened to a bow, an arrow uh, in Jeremiah 9, chapter 3. And so we see the second indictment. It's our, it's our wicked words. So we have our, our wayward hearts and our wicked words, and then we have our warlike ways. This is the third indictment here. And, and Paul shows how sin has corrupted our conduct Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. This is a quote from Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8. Just talking about how murder and hatred just, just characterize human interaction. You think about it, it's interesting. The first recorded sin outside the garden was what? Murder. Cain murdered his brother Abel. And so man's first sin separated them from God and man's second sin separated them from what? Each other. And so our sin affects not just our relationship with God, it it affects our sin with each other, our our relationship with each other. He says destruction and misery are in their past. In other words, we damage and destroy everything we touch. We, We leave a trail of pain and suffering and heartache in our path. We hurt and we abuse one another and we call all we we cause all sorts of devastation in our own lives and the lives of other people. And the path of peace they have not known. Our lives are filled with conflict and and strife. We, 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 We don't know how to get along. Remember Rodney King? After the LA riots, can't 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 we all get along? That was a great point. The question is, not without Christ we can't. Jeremiah 6.14, they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace. But there is no peace. And we know that the world will never experience true, lasting peace until the Prince of Peace comes back and sets up his kingdom here on this earth. That's when we'll experience peace peace. And then lastly, just the fourth indictment is our wrong views. Our wrong views, particularly our view of God is what is Paul's point here, how sin has just corrupted our core. He ends here with the the cause or the source of man's sin. What is it? Well, bottom line, there's no fear of God before their eyes. They don't fear God. The reason why we do all the wrong things we do is because we don't do the one right thing, which is to fear God. And so if we disregard who God is, 
what else are we going to do? We're going to disregard what he says. So what does it mean to fear God? Well, it means to respect him, to honor him, to obey him, to, to dread the consequences of disrespecting him, dishonoring him, disobeying him. You think about Ananias and Sapphira. They lied about their offering and God killed him and it said fear came over the entire congregation. You lie, you die. Let's not do that. Or the Corinthians were messing around with communion, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, and they were being selfish and, and just kind of not uh, serving one another well. They had completely lost the focus. And, and, and so it says some of them slept. Didn't mean it, they fell asleep in the service. It means they died. According to the Old Testament, the the fear of God is preeminent. In other words, the the height of folly, the height of sin is to not fear God. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 16.6, by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. So if you don't fear God, you're not going to stay away from evil, Right? Ecclesiastes 12, 13, Solomon's conclusion after running all over the the earth trying to find happiness, satisfaction, meaning, fulfillment in life, he says, when it's all said and done, this is it. Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person for God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So it comes down to this, if we have a lofty view of God like we should, we will have a lowly view of ourselves, which will lead us to worship and, and, and serve Him as our great God and King, rather than pretending He doesn't exist so that we can worship and serve ourselves. John Stott said it this way, sin is the revolt of the self against God, the dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. Take God off the throne so that we can sit there. Ultimately, sin is self-deification, the reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. What a great example we have in the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up on his throne, the angels worshiping him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What was his reaction to that? Huh, this is cool. This is where I belong. I'm the prophet of God. I'm the holiest guy in the nation. I'm God's man. I'm God's mouthpiece. No, he said this, woe is me for I am what? Ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. The exact opposite of there is no fear of God before their eyes. He saw God in all of his glory and he responded appropriately by falling on his face 
in humble confession of sin. What more proof do you need that you and the entire human race is entirely, totally, completely depraved? The question is, if this is true, if we are this radically depraved, completely corrupt, then how can we possibly be saved? The disciples asked Jesus that question after the rich young ruler walked away, unwilling to give up his stuff to follow Jesus, and they said, who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, with people this is impossible, but with God, what? All things are possible. Jesus wanted them to know that there was nothing, absolutely nothing that they could do to save themselves. God's sovereign saving grace was their only hope. And so the better we, again, apprehend the depth of our depravity, the greater we'll appreciate the depth of God's grace in seeking and saving wretched sinners like us. We sang earlier probably the most well-known hymn in all of church history, Amazing Grace, which has probably the most recognized and, uh, and beloved lyric ever penned, the first line, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that what? Saved a wretch. Like, not the guy sitting next to me, or the guy I work with, or the kid I go to school with. No, that saved a wretch like me. And I'm sure most of you know that was the personal testimony of the author, John Newton, who was born into a Christian home back in 18th century England, and for the first six years of his life, he heard the gospel, the truth of the gospel, from his godly mother. However, his father was a merchant sea captain, and shortly after his mother died, he joined his father on his ship, and by the age of 11, he was sailing the high seas, and and his life went downhill very fast. His early years, as he describes, were full of rebellion and debauchery. He, he just couldn't stay out of trouble. On one occasion, it says that he, was, uh, he, he, was, um, he stole the ship's whiskey and got so drunk that he fell overboard and he almost drowned until one of the, the shipmates uh, harpooned him and dragged him back on board ship. And as a result, he had this huge scar in his side for the rest of his life. As you can imagine, he, he got involved in those days in the slave trade between West Africa and West Indies and America and eventually became a captain of his own ship. And you can imagine, again, just, just capturing black natives and selling them as slaves was a cruel, it was a vicious way of life. And uh, all of this came to a, a sudden end when on one of his voyages, his ship ran into this violent storm in the North Atlantic, and, and when it, it appeared to him that the ship would sink and the, the entire crew would be lost, 
this hardened sea captain began to reflect on the scripture verses that his mother had taught him as a child. Parents, if you have wayward children, be encouraged. Years later, right? God's word does not return void. And it was that frightening incident that led Newton to turn from his life of sin and commit his life to Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And and so he gave up the slave trade and devoted the rest of his life to being a pastor. And until the time of his death at age 82, John Newton never ceased to be amazed by God's grace and mercy that had so dramatically changed his life. And it's recorded that in one of his final sermons before he died, he proclaimed, he made this proclamation with a very loud voice for emphasis. He said this, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. Amen? That's your testimony. That's my testimony, that was Paul's testimony, who said in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. John Newton, right, coming ahead of me later on, got nothing on me. I'm the most wretched sinner that's ever walked this earth in Paul's mind. Yet, for this reason, I found mercy so that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And God's people said, amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>